of this is nothing by comparison with what we have in store for us right now, which is a lecture on independent research libraries and their future by Marcus McCorison, who should know. He is a past president and president still of the Independent Research Library Association uh, and has been director and librarian of the American Antiquarian Society for more than 10 years. Uh, and is also, I might add, a graduate of the School of Library Service, class of 1954. Uh, long associated with Vermont imprints and with practically everything else that's important in research librarianship. Marcus McCorson, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Bellinger, it is nice to be back. I um, rarely have darkened the doors of uh, this establishment since I left years ago. I think that this is a room in which um, uh, a, the, uh, a, a uh, trial, trial uh, course on uh, the great books was held here back in 1950 in the spring of 1954, Jim Heslin and I were two of the guinea pigs of a few dozen, perhaps, total that uh, took part in all that. And uh, so it's nice to get back. I, Terry uh, showed me some of the classrooms and pointed out that nothing had changed since I'd been here then, although the chairs seem to be a little less uh, useful now than they were uh, then. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, and as Terry said, I'm going to talk about independent research libraries. I've concocted a, a, uh, a title which I failed to communicate to our host, uh, and that is, since I like it so much, I'm going to read it to you, whether you want it or not. And the title of my talk is The Perils of Erla, or How Does a Single Girl Find True Happiness in This Cold, Cruel World? That's followed with a question mark, I might add. <laughs> um, I, I concocted this because I thought it was clever and it was uh, confusing and it would give me a good deal of latitude. Uh, I could talk about uh, wayward girls on the streets of the metropolis or uh, I could uh, talk about melodrama as a literary genre uh, but or any other number of things that the title suggests. But uh, in fact, as Terry has already uh, informed you, I'm talking about Erla Independent Research Library Association and some of the members of that, uh, of that organization. <coughs> the association, the Independent Research Library Association, is a rump organization of 14 institutions now. There were 15, uh, and actually, there still are, but the John Currar Library, uh, since its uh, uh, impending uh, amalgamation with the University of Chicago, is, uh, is will retire from our group. In any case, there are 14 active in institutions with diverse interests, but with two overriding uh, unifying elements. Each member maintains a library whose collections and services have national implications for, for scholarship particularly, but not solely, in the humanities. 
Each member is dependent upon its own wits and energy for survival. New York City libraries in this group are the New York Public Library, the Pierpont Morgan Library, the New York Historical Society, and the New York Academy of Medicine. Some of the others are the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Newbury Library, the Henry E. Huntington Library, the Library Company of Philadelphia, and dare I breathe the word, or the words, the American Antiquarian Society. Excluded from this group are such excellent libraries as the Beinecke, Houghton, John Carter Brown, and the Bancroft, because they are situated upon university campuses and then and are in major part, if not wholly, supported by their universities. So to be a member of this august group, one has to be truly independent with its own board of trustees and issuing an annual report and uh, uh, reporting to no other agency but uh, the trustees of, of the organization. Erla was established in 1971 following a meeting of the American, at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences during which problems with the 1969 tax revision law as well as other matters were discussed. And as usual, I think uh, in human affairs, uh, economics uh, drove us together at the beginning. But the sole officer of this organization is the chairman who serves for two-year indefinite terms and performs all administrative duties of the organization. We have campaigned with some success before congressional committees dealing with the National Endowment for the Humanities for a more favorable interpretation of the tax law and the broadening of eligibility for participation in the Library Services and Construction Act and the Higher Education Act. Now, certain members have begun joint programmatic ventures in the way of scholarly conferences and seminars. Two of these libraries participate in the Research Libraries, libraries Group, either as a full or associate member. That libraries in Erla have, a certain, have certain strengths in collections and in programs through which they encourage advanced scholarship is due essentially to the fact that they are not engaged in the support of undergraduate education. Thus, their collecting policies are not dependent upon considerations of curriculum nor of temporary faculty interests. Rather, each institution has followed lines of strength in building their collections, which now place those holdings in preeminent positions. Thus, their collections determine readership rather than the demands of users determining the shape of the collections. Also, some of these institutions have active publishing programs. Others make fellowships available to bring ripened scholars or beginning students to their reading rooms. Some carry on extensive museum programs. Still others are learned societies of the old school. And of course, some carry a full load of all of these activities. <clears throat> but whatever the special strengths or programs an institution may promulgate, each is an active leader in the encouragement and dissemination of learning. And without the collections and services of research libraries which, up, which make up ERLA, the cause of scholarship within the nation would be seriously impaired. Well, it surely is susceptible to the perils which lie in the path of other independent cultural institutions. Isolation and its attendant, and its attendant evil self-satisfaction, for example. Beyond that, Erla labors beneath at least, at least two other major disabilities. The first is function. 
for although we have a great mission, it is not a terribly popular one, either in the sense of numbers or in the sense of image. The writing of a scholarly book is not a very public kind of activity. It is as intensely personal as any human activity possibly can be, in fact, and I suspect it's even less communal than sex. Earla Taylor's services for individual use, a great deal of staff support, uncommon, fragile, even irreplaceable research materials to be acquired, organized, and preserved, a pleasant and calm place in which to work. Beyond these traditional amenities, scholars now expect to find copying machines, computers, textual catalog, collating machines, and other facilities freely provided for them, or at least substantially subsidized. <clears throat> All of this costs Earl a large amount of money, yet none of these elements makes a dramatic focus with which to call attention to our place in the world. The writer and his book quite properly may come to public attention, but the library in which the book was written rarely, rarely enters the public consciousness. This leads us to the second disability, the lack of a large and, and interested constituency. Individual scholars from University X or Y or Z make up Earl's principal public. In response to letters for modest annual financial contributions, individual, uh, we learn that either those scholars gave at the office or that they are too poor to contribute. In any case, academics often do not seem to have developed a high degree of sense of responsibility towards the institutions on which they may depend for intellectual sustenance. Erla, unlike colleges, does not have alumni bodies who have been, been well conditioned in the art of giving. Rather, Erla depends upon a relatively small number of lay people who would voluntarily take on the responsibilities of the life of our libraries. That's normally the case, of course. <clears throat> Despised by the nation for not training our young, ignored by readers, pressed to the wall by an inflationary economy, where is Erla to turn? Where, oh, where is our hero who will step forward to say, I'll pay the rent, thus saving Erla from a fate worse than death? If anyone is going to pay the rent, it'll have to be each independent research library. This has been true since each one of us was founded, and is true of any other organization, in fact, private academic institution, public museum, or national library. Each of us pays the rent by demonstrating anew to each generation the usefulness of itself to society at large, by illustrating the pertinence of its institutional past, its collections, and its services to present interests and demands. And it may be thus that the example of my own institution, the American Antiquarian Society, might be of some interest to you at this point. We were established in 1812 in Worcester, Massachusetts by Isaiah Thomas, who still, I think, holds a reputation as an outstanding printer and publisher. He, like Earl, began as a very poor boy and worked himself up to uh, uh, a comfortable fortune uh, through diligence, intelligence, and good taste. As his means grew, he collected books and had some of them beautifully bound. He actively collected newspapers and other products of the American press, as well as notes for the writing of his history of printing in America, <coughs> which he published in 1810. The difficulties that he experienced in attempting to gather material for the history prompted him to establish a new society uh, after, the, after its publication. In 1812, in an address to the members of the newly formed 
American Antiquarian Society, Thomas wrote, the great benefits arising to the civilized world from associations of individuals for promoting knowledge, industry, or, future, or virtue are universally acknowledged. Men are so constituted by nature that human actions and the events which befall human beings have more powerful influence than any other objects to engage and fix their attention. We cannot attain a knowledge of those who come after us, nor are we certain that what will be, uh, and nor are we certain what will be the events of future times. As it is in our power, so it should be our duty to bestow on past posterity that which they cannot give to us, but which they may enlarge and improve and transmit to those who shall succeed them. He recognized that his generation, which had taken part in the American Revolution, must preserve its own history. And as a Republican, that's a small r, I might add, Thomas believed that those events had been wrought by common people, not alone by the great actors upon the world's stage. Thus he intended to preserve the materials used by, read from, or worked upon by the citizens of the new American nation. Thomas represented the con resented the condescending attitude displayed by Englishmen and Europeans toward all things American. It was then commonly held as a scientific truth that the flora and fauna, including mankind, of the New World were inferior to those of the old. And we recall Sidney Smith's condescending query in the four corners, corners of four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book? So Thomas's questions were, what is the truth about America? Where, where are the data to prove the theories concerning Americans and their continent? And Isaiah Thomas believed that there was no place in the new nation where those materials were being preserved. So he set about to establish one. He intended that the responsibility of AAS would include the antiquities of all, West, all of the Western Hemisphere, literary, natural, and man-made. The knowledge gained through investigation of the collections would enable Americans to determine for themselves the secrets of the past, just as they were able themselves to determine the course of their new nation. Also, Thomas's institution would preserve the proofs of a social ideal that for its adherents balanced personal freedom with self-control and communal responsibility. In free states, Cato wrote, polite arts and learning are naturally produced. Thus, the result of free in inquiry in religious or political matters is consensus and a resolution of public questions. A political system of checks and balances produces the same result in public life. It was argued then that the free interplay and resolution of ideas would result in the growth of perfection in all things political, religious, and cultural. And the American Antiquarian Society was founded to channel historical knowledge and opinion into an arena from which truth would surely emerge. Thomas intended that his institution should receive, quote, books of every description, including pamphlets and magazines, especially those which were early printed either in South or in North America. Files of newspapers of former times or of the present day are particularly desirable. Manuscripts, ancient and modern, on interesting subjects, particularly those which give accounts of remarkable events, discoveries, or the description of any part of the continent or islands in the American seas, maps, charts, etc. He went on to urge his fellow members to search for those numberless old books, newspapers, magazines, and many relics of antiquity crowded together in garrets and storehouses of no use to anyone and hastening to destruction by means of the weather and vermin. Members of the society would collect thus 
uh, not the ancient volumes of classical learning. Rather, Thomas's foundation would preserve democratic literature and the written materials of a culture in which all sorts of ideas freely circulate and from which precipitate, precipitate new ideas of the true and the beautiful. This was, in fact, a, this was, in fact, a revolutionary plan for even the libraries that passed in 1812 as public were given over to a reasonably stable body of literature. A review of library catalogs of that period demonstrated a remarkable congruence of opinion on, of what constituted an acceptable stock of books in collegiate and social libraries. Thus, the library and field of inquiry established by Thomas constituted a pioneering departure from the norm and reflected his own essentially secular, non-academic, and proletarian background. During the 19th century, institutions such as the New York Historical Society, or our own, my own, were centers for the encouragement of learning. Our national government was notoriously slow to assume such a task, taking, for example, a full 10 years before it accepted the opportunity offered through the 1836 bequest of an Englishman, James Smithson. College faculties transmitted received knowledge rather than attempting to increase the, that body of knowledge. Those old learned societies encouraged and published the results of the investigations of its members who were amateurs of learning or of others who were members of the learned professions, theology, medicine, law, who met on equal footing as testimony to the concept of an open republic of letters. However, as the 19th century wore on, American scholars traveled to German universities to be trained in the new ways of developing knowledge on a formalized and scientific ground. As modern American universities developed from those German models, the amateur tradition was displaced. The learned societies gave up portions of their responsibilities to the research universities where the scientific nature of knowledge was esteemed and where the public came to believe more effective ways of developing useful knowledge would flourish. The public may have correctly judged that matter, but not the social cost, which has been a separation of the lay public from professional scholars. The increasing professionalism of historians, each practitioner attaining and claiming authority over a body of esoteric knowledge, has led to a narrow has led to narrow focuses of historical studies and to less applications of historical insights on the human condition. The price of these trends is a lowered appreciation <coughs> of a historical point of view by a large portion of our present society. The American Antiquarian Society has tried to meet the challenges and opportunities that now face us through a variety of means, none of which <coughs> depart radically from our central mission of collecting and preserving the materials of our national past and to encourage and foster their, uh, their use and, and to encourage their use to foster learning, to diffuse knowledge and to provide enjoyment that comes from knowing who we are, where we are, and how we got here. As the years have gone by, the society has had to redefine its collecting goals, for example. We no longer collect the antiqui antiquities from all parts of the Western Hemisphere. In fact, we have limited our collections to material, printed materials, essentially, and manuscripts, uh, to, to materials pertaining to the English-speaking North America through the year 1876. That decision was dictated by the realities of available financial resources, the strength of our existing collections, and the logic of the date as a national anniversary and as a reason reasonably accurate demarcation point in our national life. And finally, as a concluding date of the Society's longstanding efforts to provide national bibliographical coverage of American printing. 
But if we have reduced the scope of our collecting efforts, we have vastly expanded our efforts to provide greater coverage and more effective services within the boundaries of our chosen segments of American history and culture. <coughs> AAS collections to grow at a reasonably rapid pace, thereby making our holdings larger, deeper, and more comprehensive. Our services to scholars and the lay public have broadened substantially in the last few years as we attempt to make those, those collections more useful to old and new constituencies. We have enlarged our staff and improved its quality by attracting curators to each of our collections who are both learned and accomplished in interpreting, in interpreting their collections. We have established competitions for fellowships which are designed to bring to the scholar, to the society, competent scholars with, with interests that parallel our collections for periods of one month to a full year. Our publication program, which was established in 1820, has grown in the last few years. In addition to publishing our proceedings twice yearly, as well as, some, as, well as substantial bibliographical works, since 1955, with the Redex Microprint Corporation, we have been engaged in editing and publishing in microform all of the materials printed in the present United States from the year 1640 through the year 1819, the year that the editors presumed ended the second de third, second decade of the, of the 19th century. That work has now been completed. More recently, we have established educational activities at the Society, which includes an honors level seminar for upperclassmen from the five undergraduate colleges in Worcester, a lunchtime colloquia for local scholars and our staff, and a seminar on politics and culture, which meets about six times a year and attracts scholars from the New England region and sometimes beyond. In addition, we have scheduled public lectures, poetry readings, dramatic and musical performances, a class on American Victorian culture offered through the local public school adult education division, and have sponsored a, pro a professionally produced motion picture using our lithographic collections to illustrate 19th century American life. Along, along with those activities, we, we did a uh, series of facsimiles of maps, broadsides, title pages, newspapers, and so on with a teacher's guide, which we issued during the bicentennial, which was designed to uh, be used by uh, junior high school and high school uh, teachers in explicating uh, various historical uh, activities uh, during that uh, bicentennial period. All these things are designed in one way or another to interpret our holdings to a public with interest in historical subjects, but a public that does not have a deep research interest in the fields of American history and culture. In May 1982, we opened a new facility directly across the street from the Society, which enables us to house visiting scholars and provides us with rooms suitable for medium-sized public events, which heretofore had been held in Antiquarian Hall. At present, we are engaged in an effort to augment our endowment in order that we can improve library operations and services to our readers. The goal of the Isaiah Thomas Fund is $8,750,000, which we intend to meet by 1987, and after about a year's work, we have some $3,200,000, not in the bank, but pledged and some in the bank. We've expanded our activities otherwise. The Society is a member of both the Research Libraries Group and OCLC. We have begun in a modest way the development of a computerized database locally, and we intend to expand it. 
we look forward to better integrating the interpretive programs with our library resources and the research activities of our staff and visiting scholars. For example, plans are now well underway for the establishment of a program in the history of the book in American society. We expect that this program, as well as our now traditional programs, lectures and performances, will provide a more effective interpretation of American history for all of our constituencies. Thus, the work before us, that is independent research libraries, and this particular independent research library and its other colleagues, is both substantial in opportunities and in scope. It is based on the broad raising of expectations for personal enrichment enjoyment and enjoyment, both cultural and economic, among the nation's population. This is due to a greatly enlarged national economic base and its attendant improved opportunities for higher education. However, like the disfigured, like the dignified lady who did not fulfill her youthful promise, our long-range future, and I discount the present financial recession, is not without difficulties which must be resolved if independent research institutions can fully provide the unique services for learning of which they are capable. Early institutions, until the advent of programs within the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Title IIc grants for research libraries have been denied access to federal funding. Because they lack ready-made large and loyal constituencies, as I mentioned earlier, the raising of private monies have been difficult indeed. Increasing numbers of scholars have abandoned collegiate institutions as places at which to con conduct humanistic research and have come to depend, many of them have come to depend upon early institutions as centers of, of advanced research. Thus, our success in attracting more readers and new constituencies tends to increase our operating expenses while the sources for financing remain few and far between. There may be even more subtle changes at work which will be significant to the future of independent research libraries. Our fellow citizens seem to be saying that although some cultural institutions may be independently financed and managed, they still belong to the nation. Several questions in this vein are now debated. For example, how responsive are those institutions to public desires and needs? Ought not institutions which are tax-exempt be subject to public influence because of that fact? Or the purposes and unique services of an early institution appear to make little impact upon decisions made by private or, or governmental agencies on whose peripheries we touch. Daniel Bell discussed these, discussed these attitudes in an article in an issue of the public, in an article in an issue of the public interest. He likened all institutions, personal, independent, or governmental, to a part of a public household and notes that our society is undergoing a, re a revolution of rising entitlements, the members of it expecting or demanding a sharing of the national treasure, both economic and cultural. Bell suggests that our present institutions, as well as our economy, may not be able to support such expectations or, in order to supply them, society may have to make substantial alterations to its structure during the next generation. But, <clears throat> but as I have tried to suggest through the experiences of the antiquarian society, independent research libraries own strengths uh, to keep their place uh, in the world. We have purposes and functions for the public good that are not duplicated in our communities. Our collections offer unique resources for understanding human nature and actions. Our problems can be focused to enhance and interpret long-standing policies 
rather than changing frequently to meet popular moves and shifting priorities. Our collecting policies need not be dependent upon considerations of passing interest. Rather, we can follow lines of strength in building collections and programs uh, in order to enhance our overall, pro our overall work. Whatever our special strengths or programs may be, each institution can be an active leader in the encouragement and dissemination of learning. For as patterns of research based on academic disciplines have been found to be limiting, independent research, independent institutions have taken on new life as centers for advanced study and as, a, and as dynamic agents in encouraging the interaction of ideas among our fellow citizens. Our present task is to make our unique resources most useful to an expanding constituency and to maintain and enlarge the channels through which amateur and professional scholars can enrich our communal historical imagination. During the past few decades, the fabric of our country has undergone fundamental changes. The size and diversity of our population have increased. So too has the need of all, of all elements in our culture to locate links within our national past that connect all citizens. Independent research libraries hold a singular place in our society to foster such processes among our fellows. Some years after the founding of AAS, a spiritual colleague of Dr. Thomas, Henry Stevens of Vermont, wrote, and I quote, a nation's books are her vouchers, <clears throat> her libraries are her monuments, her wealth of gold and silver, whether invested in commerce or bonds or banks, is always working for her, but her stores of golden thoughts, inventions, discoveries, and intellectual treasures, invested mainly in print and manuscript, are too often stored somewhere in limbo. They slumber rather than fructify." End of quote. It is the privilege of independent research libraries to help ensure that the great natural, national treasures of books and manuscripts that have been given to us by past generations and that we hold in trust for future generations will increase for the enrichment and enjoyment of our fellow citizens. Thank you very much.